I don't know about you, but I've found um, our studies, we've been studying Revelation since Art Price, and I found the study very uh, encouraging and uh, enlightening. I'm not, ta- I haven't really done much of it, so I'm not like speaking to myself. I'm just saying in general, I, uh, I've been enjoying this because I have a history with this book in a way. Uh, I grew up in the church and what I'm going to share on this morning is the middle vision uh, in Revelation. So you have the first chapter, which is kind of an introduction and uh, tells us about this guy named John who's in prison and writing this letter to all of these churches in Western Turkey. And then the second two chapters are specific letters to those churches. But then from chapter four, all the way to the end of the book really is this like vision uh, specifically what I'm referring to is the central vision here from 4 all the way to chapter 18. And growing up with this vision, I was always kind of hoping that someone would make the call to remove it from the book of Revelation and just have the beginning and the end because that's just much more easy to understand. I'm always looking at this and it was presented to me in a way that was just a future. You can only see these events in the light of future events. And as a child or a teenager, this was kind of daunting to me because there's no way that I could ever feel confident that the figures or the people that we see in uh, history or current events line up with the characters and the symbols that we see in this vision. So I'm uh, constantly, you know, hearing this from my brothers or hearing this from my friends, oh, the great harlot in chapter 17 is Lady Gaga, or, oh, the, the beast with the fatal head wound is Gorbachev, because obviously that birthmark on his head, you know, this is kind of telling. It's like, I always feeling like, I'm not really sure though, you know? And how can I rest my life on something that's just so fickle and you, you know, you read books like 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, and you start to think, is there something here that we can actually bank on? I'll be honest, it goes beyond just sort of, you know, uh, a, a pithy kind of childhood memory. It did, in my cynical moments, become more of a place of resentment. Why would God put something in the Bible and tell me to treasure the Bible, to read the Bible, but it's just so unclear to me? It's kind of cruel of him to put that there to just mess with me. You know, I'd ask my dad, like, what is the meaning of this? And he's like, I don't know, but all you have to really look for is if someone asks you to take a mark or a one world currency, and, I, and then it'll all fall into place. And I'm like, really? Okay, I got my eye on you, Bitcoin. Um, I'm, I'm like, okay, uh, apparently we can just remove all this other stuff and keep those two verses, and we'll see what happens in the future. I'll be honest with you, my whole relationship prior, you know, to this season of life here with this vision has been really me hiding behind who this could be about, as opposed to what I should be doing, which is wrestling with what this is about. And evaluate yourself, is, is this letter to you an excuse, uh, is the cryptic nature of this letter an excuse to just sort of say, I don't know who this is about, so therefore I'm not going to interact with it personally. 
How much time have we spent actually asking ourselves who this is about? And that's what we've been trying to do as a community when we study this is ask who, who, who is it about, but only to the extent that it informs what it is about. And then to be good stewards of what this is about by evaluating our own lives and how we're interacting with it. So if you're interested in doing that and you're with me, then please stand with me for the reading of chapter, uh, a portion of chapter 17 um, in Revelation. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth have committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with, her wine, with the wine of her adultery. So the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a cup in her hand that was filled with abominable, 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 filled with really offensive things (laughs) and the filth of her adulteries. The name was written on her forehead, was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitute and the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw, it once was. Now is not, and yet will come up out of the sea and will go to the destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls to mind wisdom. The seven heads of the beast are the seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does, he'll remain only for a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is the eighth king. But he belongs to the seven and is going on to his destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and it's to give their power and authority back to the beast. They'll wage war against the lamb, but with the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and he is the king of kings. And with him will be his called, his chosen, and his faithful followers. These are the words of God. You may have a seat. Did I read it too fast? I felt like I was going a little fast. I'd like to introduce these two characters to you um, and then sort of lay out the underpinning context for this whole center vision from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 18. And then I would like to draw two kind of... um, draw out two themes that I see happening there. Are you with me? The underpinning assumption that we've been operating on uh, for our interpretation of this vision is that, uh, well, actually our interpretation for this whole letter is that John is writing a subversive commentary, a critique on the Roman Empire. He's confronting something. Now, 
Uh, he can do that in, in different ways. But when it comes to this vision from 4 all the way to um, 18, specifically confronting, I think, the empire and its leadership. And in order to do that, you have to be kind of cryptic or else it's not going to leave, you know, the door. I mean, some Roman prisoner will read, they'd be like, you can't write this. This is treason, you know. And so he, we have to give him some grace uh, for being somewhat cryptic in this writing. I don't think he's trying to trick anyone. I think that this actually meant something to the original people who are reading it. I think that if we can identify what, uh, you know, what this is about, then that also will mean something to us. Because I think we struggle with some of the, the same things that Rome was presenting uh, the people of this time. So who is uh, the harlot and, and who is this beast that she's writing? Well, let's just take a look at what she looks like. You can see in uh, you know, verse 4, she's stunning. She's wearing all kinds of, uh, of, of gold and pearls, and she's wearing purple and scarlet colors that only the top 1% or a royal person could wear. She's drinking out of a golden cup, and a lot of people are buying what she's selling. You can see uh, she's not just called a woman, but she's also called the city. So this is my first kind of um, adventure into what she stands for. It's not just a person. I think it's actually a, a culture, like a Roman city. Take Rome, for example. If you go to this city, especially in this day, it's stunning. If you go to the city now, it's stunning. The, thing, the, the way it was built, the architecture, it was just alluring and people loved it and just like even now when we uh invest into something like say a sports team their success is your success their loss is your loss it's it's this connection that we can have with even our cities that we're loyal to for example Imagine if uh, this harlot represents the culture of a Roman city and you've invested in that because what that's going to say is, is that you are also as stunning and valuable and precious as this city. And what that city, uh, the Roman culture would stand for was maximum pleasure. It's obsessed with comfort. And it was spreading all throughout the citizens. If you supported this city, if you were part of this, then you participated and, and were a part of this, uh, this venture of trying to be as comfortable and as entertained and as uh, pleased as possible. Many, many people were into this. As you can see uh, in chapter 18 when it says that, that Babylon, this harlot, has fallen. Kings merchants, people from the earth, all kinds of tradesmen and people from different nations are mourning. So this is just, this is all of the Roman kind of culture that's infected all kinds of different cities, not just Rome, but even Jerusalem. Remember when the, uh, Pilate brings Jesus out in the gospels and he says, here is your king. What do they say? We have one king, Caesar. They have also started to adopt this um, obsession with the harlot. But the harlot can only go as far as what she's writing. So you'll notice she's writing on a beast. Well, what does it mean for the beast? Well, luckily the angel decided to, uh, he thought it was important enough to kind of give John kind of the answer of what the beast is. Problem is, when we read this, it's kind of like, no one knows what he's talking about. I mean, 
I'm like, thank you for that secret uh, detail there. Um, that makes no sense to me. Verse uh, 7 to 9, you may remember, it's kind of a tongue twister. There were seven hills, and then there's eight kings. Now, if you were in tune with what the kings of the seven hills of that day would have been, this would have made more sense. The seven hills, I think, represents Rome, because Rome is a city built on seven hills. Even to this day, it's references as the seven hills. So now the kings of the seven hills are who we call Caesars, right? Now, the first Caesar... Julius Caesar, but he never really technically claimed himself to be Caesar. So officially, you start counting at his son, Augustus. So then if you go five, okay, so Augustus, then who? Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Five have fallen. And then the next major Caesar will be Vespasian, starting the Flavian family. So Vespasian, he has two sons. Titus, be the seventh. What do they say of the seventh? He'll only reign for a little while. Titus only had a two-year reign. And then the eighth, who's part of the seven, is Domitian. Now the reason why there's like a reference kind of funny to that eighth uh, king there is because I think, um, if you look at history, you can see Vespasian, his dad when he was crowned the sixth Caesar, was in Egypt for like six months to a year before he was able to get back and actually start uh, ruling. And so while he was gone, Domitian... Uh, filled in for him. And so you could reference Domitian and say, he was, he's not anymore, but he will be. And he's going on to his destruction as well. So if you're buying what I'm selling, that this paradigm, um, it it, it fits of the Caesars, the kings of Rome, right? Um, At the very least, you have to admit that this is a, you know, valid option for who the beast is. At the most, It looks like a dead bullseye for who the beast is. And if you could take that, now let's ask the question, what does this mean? Well, it means that this critique that John is writing here is not only subversive to the Roman culture or the Roman way of life, but it's subversive also to the leadership. So not just a people group who are obsessed with comfort, but a people group who are obsessed with power. The Roman Caesars with the most megalomaniac Uh, power-hungry leaders of this day, and they were uh, elevating themselves to the status of God. Not Not only is that just a historical fact, but you also see that in chapter 13 when the beast of the sea arrives. It's demanding worship. People are worshiping it. He even sets up another beast. Remember the beast of the land, which is given authority to speak on the beast's behalf. Okay, so that's kind of like the, uh, the priest. The priest of the land who's trying to get people to worship the beast. And prop, like, uh, propaganda kind of moving all throughout the land. So you have this beast who is hungry and obsessed with power. And promising then stability. And guess what? People were loving it. If you read chapter 13, you'll see them looking at the beast and they say what? Who is like the beast? Who could stand against this? They were spontaneously just worshiping the power that came with this beast. Or the power that was attributed to the movement of the Caesars, the emperors of Rome. So as John is critiquing this, this uh, subversive kind of underpinning context of, of this whole vision from chapter 4 to chapter 18 of Revelation... 
On top of that then is layered this confrontation of that reality. So this vision, the real substance of it is is there's a confrontation to the uh, leadership of Rome and to the culture of Rome. And the confrontation is simple. It's really saying this. Who really is God? Who really has power? Is it the Caesar? Who really has comfort and pleasure? Who really can be the source of joy and the source of life? Is it the harlot? And what is the fate of everybody who's allegiant to those two? It's offensive to God. What's in her cup, the cup looks good. But when people drink it, it's offensive to God. For it's full of the blood of innocent people and the saints of the Lord. Anyone that was against uh, this beast and this harlot would then be uh, killed. Anyone who would get in the way. Now we're preaching. So uh, I'd like to uh, develop uh, two themes that come through that confrontation. Okay, the first theme that I'd like to show you is the theme of God rescuing people. So throughout this vision, God rescues people. Maybe it would help if I remind you a little bit of the structure of that vision if you haven't been here in recent weeks. Chapter 4 is this vision of God on the throne. John, kind of really strategically, doesn't ever really describe the way God looks. Which is smart because he was writing to a group of people who were making a man look like, or making man out to be God. It would be kind of counterproductive uh, of John to describe God in man-like terms. What does he say? All he says is the throne. He who sits on the throne. And then he attributes kind of an experience to that throne. Thunder, lightning, and smoke. The next chapter, chapter 5, we see the lamb who's seated on the throne with the one who is on the throne. And the lamb represents Jesus. The lamb then initiates from chapter 6 on three sequences of seven. And they're all kind of a response, a violent response to what's happening in uh, the Roman culture and what's being done by the Roman Caesars, right? Okay, so you'll see these three cycles of seven. One of them is represented by seals, not the animal, but the wax thing that goes on like a scroll. So the scroll that he sees is like God's vision for how, uh, for redemption and for his people, what they should do, and it's sealed. And every time they break one of those seals, another thing in history will happen, a calamity or a war, result of war. Same thing with the next seven, which are trumpets. The trumpets are then blown and initiates another calamity or a plague or something that's sort of uh, coming from God, but as a response to uh, the drama that's happening in the Roman Empire. And number three, you have these bulls uh, filled with the wrath of God that are poured out. Okay? If you read this and you start to get kind of bogged down on the outline here, uh, how I like to see it is in terms of a song. So let's say you have three groups of seven, you know, just like the outline. And one of them is uh, violinists, you know, strings, instruments. The other one is trumpets. And the other one is percussion. And just attribute each of those to the, uh, the trumpets, the seals, and the bulls, right? Well, the strings are going to start playing. And, and, and the, the, the 
The drums are going to start playing at a different time. And the horns are going to come in at a different time. But they're all playing the same song. They all have their own unique signature, their own unique purpose. But they're playing the same song, written by the same person, and conducted by the same person. And that person is God. You can see that uh, through the literary device that John uses of referencing that thunder and that lightning and that smoke at the sixth stage of each of those things. So it's all looping back to who this is coming from. Now, as I said, this theme of rescue we're developing out of this is really helpful to me, and I think it can be seen most clearly in all of the connections here uh, to Israel's greatest rescuing story. Does anyone know what it is? The Exodus, thank you. It's just, this is the greatest story of rescue. Yeah, you're ch- you should have said it louder. Uh, <laughs> I saw somebody going like this. The, um, the Exodus story is the greatest story of rescue in the history of Israel. It's not hard to find that this, uh, that this is linked to, to a lot of the different details in this song, right? In these series of sevens. For example... The thunder and lightning that I already referenced. This is the first thing that Israel sees when they come to Mount Sinai during the Exodus story. This is what their God experience was already like. When you read on in chapter 12, you'll see these two witnesses. Well, that reminds me a lot of who? Moses and Aaron, the two people of the Exodus story who are speaking on behalf of God. Look at chapter 15. Um... Or listen, in chapter 15, verse 2, I saw what looked to be a sea of glass, but it's kind of mixed with fire. Okay, so the color of this would be a reddish sea. All right, so we have a red sea here, and then we have people standing by the red sea, and what are they doing? They're singing the song of Moses, all right? This reminds me of a story in the Bible where people were standing by a Red Sea singing the song of Moses after it had been parted for them in the Exodus. Look at verse 5. And then I looked and saw heaven open, and I saw the temple. Actually, he, goes, <laughs> he says, no, actually, the tabernacle. He goes out of his way to correct himself instead of staying just the temple to reference the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting from the Exodus story. This is also helpful when we start to read this to give us some sort of paradigm for how we understand the punishment. You know what I'm saying? Like when I read this, I sometimes think, is God allowed to do this? This is some very violent things happening here. I've heard people say, you know, uh, I only like the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. But then I'm like, well, maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't read this part here. Uh, this, is, this is a strikingly similar flashback. So he relapsed. No. Um, <laughs> is God allowed to pour wrath? Is he allowed to punish? Is he allowed to do this? Well, I'm just asking myself here for some consistency because I celebrate the Passover just as much as the next guy. And I read the story every spring of when, G- when God sees the outcry of his oppressed people and he rescues them out of Egypt. What does it come along with? All kinds of punishment. Why is it that when I see plagues in Exodus, I'm okay with it? 
in a way. But then when I see plagues in, in Revelation, I think, no, 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 that's not allowed anymore. I mean, why is it that when I see uh, God rescuing people and then taking people out, that I have to feel like I give an excuse for him? Well, my, when I was a kid, my parents used to tell me, Dan, don't retaliate to your brothers uh, who, you know, would be pastoring me or whatever. And then they'd quote a verse from the Exodus, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. St. Paul uses this in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay evil with evil. And then quotes Deuteronomy. And he says, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. My question to myself and to you, if, if you're wincing at this, is did that verse, was it just intended to tell children to not retaliate? Or does it mean less than what it, what it says? Or is God able to have vengeance? Is it really his? I went to the theater to watch the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. And when he rescues his daughter from sex slavery and takes out everybody else who's involved, I was standing up, shooting at the screen, too, with my hands. I get into the story sometime a little too much. Liam Neeson doesn't apologize for violently rescuing his daughter. And nobody's looking at him saying, that father is modeled after an evil father. I don't believe in a loving father who would do that. I've seen probably the movie The Patriot 20 times. I don't know why, it just never gets old. After his one son gets wrongfully killed and his other son he goes to rescue, and there's one person running away, and he throws the axe at him and takes him out. He goes over there and he continues to hit him. And then he looks back at his boys who are just staring at him. And they're not thinking, my dad's evil. They're thinking that my dad is passionately full of love. And he, being a human example, and that we see that and we, we agree with that in some ways, how much more so would our Heavenly Father be able to look at oppression, be able to look at a people group that's being persecuted or a people group being forced to do evil things or exploited economically or exploited sexually and say to them, I will do anything to rescue you. And that's the point of having the motif of a new exodus in this. The seeds of a new exodus is telling a people group who are oppressed that you have a God who's still able, just like he was in the Old Testament, to rescue his people. He is going to rescue you as well. And if you think that this is somewhat kind of flimsy, that I'm building a straw man here, then just notice that the center of this whole vision is a lamb who was slain. Nobody got out of the Exodus without the Passover. Nobody crossed the Red Sea who wasn't covered in the blood of the Lamb. And notice how though this scope of this uh, rescue is much greater than the scope of the rescue in the Exodus. The, the Exodus rescued one people group. But in chapter 5, who's singing? They sing to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For he has redeemed people from every tribe, every people, every nation, and every tongue. 
The scope of his rescue is greater than any of us are, I think, probably imagining. And it's very encouraging. Maybe you don't like the song. Maybe you're reading and you think, I don't agree with it. But I'll tell you, a people group who's oppressed, this is music to their ears. Yeah, we might not be physically oppressed right now, or maybe some of you feel like you even are. But take two seconds and think about your life. Think of something that you're struggling with, something that you feel in bondage to. And isn't it just gospel to hear this text in the Bible say, you have someone that can rescue you. All you have to do is take, to be covered in the blood of the Lamb, and you can be rescued. You can be set free from any bondage or slavery that's in your life. God is a rescuer. The other developing theme I'd like to share with you, um, and lastly, is this. We must do something with this word overcome. Uh, it's uh, translated four different ways, I can see. Um, overcome, victory, victorious, uh, triumphed, and uh, conqueror. In Revelation, we see 17 times this word. <laughs> uh, and next week, we're flashing back and we're starting chapter 2 and 3. We'll go through all seven of the churches. And you'll notice all seven of them is challenged to overcome. The menacing thing of that is, is there's never an object to this you know, active participation. There's no like overcome the Roman. It just says to he who overcomes. And you have to think, overcome what? <laughs> Uh, So I'm just trying to help. Okay, so anyways, what I think um, this means is if you read chapter 5 and you see what John sees and here's what he hears, uh, it makes clear what this overcoming uh, theme is. He's sitting there, right? He sees the scroll. Remember the seals. And no one's able to open it. He starts to weep. Deeply desiring for that information or that plan of God, you know, to be shared. And then the angel says to him, weep no more. See, the lion of the tribe of David, the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, is, has overcome. Okay, so the lion the, of, the, of, of Judah, this warrior, this, this conquering king, has overcome. And then John opens his eyes, and what does he see? I looked, and I saw a lamb who was slain. Very profound that John would choose to forge a new metaphor for conquest by putting these two pictures against each other. The persona of the victorious lion is interpreted through the picture of the lamb that was slain. This is how he conquered. This is how he overcame. Which makes a lot of sense when you read chapter 13 and see that the beast was given the authority to overcome the saints. And then you read chapter 15, which says the saints have overcome the beast. It's the same event. By him killing the saints who are denying to be allegiant to him, they are becoming victorious like the lamb who was slain. Chapter 12, verse 11 says it best. They overcame By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they did not love life so much that they were to shrink back from death. This is the paradigm and the plan for Christian life even now. Sure, you might not face uh, physical death or martyrdom 
Maybe you will. But don't let yourself off the hook. Because we are all tempted to follow the beast. We are all tempted to take our leaders and place them in a place of power and believe that they can bring us stability and uh, and cover us. We all have the temptation to, to look at the leaders in our world and put them in the place of God. But to deny that temptation, to die to that, Revelation has a word for that. Overcome. When you die to that temptation and you look to the lamb and you say worthy is the lamb to receive all the glory. Worthy is the lamb to receive all the power. Not my leaders, the lamb. This is overcoming. When you're tempted to go the way of the harlot and to constantly be seeking after entertainment and pleasure and comfort, whatever that may be for you, and you, and you stop bowing to that idol, and we d- d- die to that, and look to the lamb, and say, no, you are much more valuable to me. You are the source, source of joy to me. You are the source of life to me. And your life is a witness to that. That is overcoming. I know it sounds especially to a culture that wants to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do. I know it sounds crazy. But in the words of a, of a rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, he said this, whoever would seek to save their life is going to lose it. But whoever lose their life for me is going to find it. That's overcoming. Let's take a moment and pray and evaluate. For those of us who have elevated, um, or I guess trusted in, in something that isn't God for our security, and given it that, you know, place in our life of power, let's just uh, turn from that, lay it down, and look to the Lord and say, you are the, you are the, you are the power, you're the all-powerful one, and I'm going to follow you regardless of, uh, of the cost. For those of us who have been seeking after the harlot and all the pleasure that we can get whenever we can get it, all the comfort that we can get whenever we can get it, we turn from that. We look towards the Lamb. See, uh, you are my source of life. And as a community, uh, let's just receive the rescue. Let's receive the blood of the Lamb covering covering our lives. The blood of Jesus who was crucified for our freedom. And we're we're receiving your rescue, God. Even in, in the largest way. But rescue us also from the smaller things too that, that we struggle with. The smaller things of bondage that are in our life as well.